Hello, this is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And this is our very spooky Halloween holiday special. Ooh. We have brought back Aaron of Insectoid Reviews and also Entomology to discuss with us the gay space masterpiece, The Locked Tomb Trilogy by <laughs> Tamsin Weir. Welcome back, Aaron. It's good to be back. It's good to have you back. And it's good to be gay and to have books about gay people <laughs> in space. Tessa, how about you establish the scene? So, okay. The Locked Tomb Trilogy, of which two books are out, is broadly speaking a fantasy series. Although it's not quite like any fantasy series I've ever read before. Um, it's set 10,000 years into what we think is our future, maybe. Um, And the backstory is that somewhere around the 20th, 21st century, humanity went extinct somehow. We think it might be due to climate change and maybe nuclear war, but it hasn't really been revealed yet. And the entire human species is just gone, except for this one dude who, in the process, somehow gains the power of necromancy. Again, we're not really sure how this happened. It hasn't been revealed yet. But he performed what has become known as the first resurrection, which was sort of a miraculous thing where he literally brought back enough human people from the dead to propagate the species. In doing so, though, he also somehow altered the characteristics of the planets in our solar system and of our sun so that necromancy now works in the solar system and that a certain percentage of all children born in the solar system but nowhere else grow up and develop necromantic powers which in this case refers to any way anything that can manipulate living or dead tissue and have it do stuff so that's kind of the setting the nine planets of our solar system are referred to the nine houses the first house earth apparently is no longer inhabited we also don't really know why the other houses all have all specialized and they all have different styles of necromancy for example sixth house does a lot more with living tissue and as a result they are the house that's also responsible for providing pretty much all medical staff to the um what's become the empire um because the dude who resurrected everybody else has named himself essentially the god emperor of humanity and is referred throughout the books as being god that's kind of where we start um and way out at the edge of the solar system we have the ninth house which is strongly implied to be pluto and the ninth house's job is to guard the tomb and make sure it stays locked and what exactly that's inside the tomb and why it's imprisoned there is slowly revealed throughout the course of the series although again because the third book isn't out yet we still don't have all the details but it's a pretty dingy place to live it's cold it's dark it's poor so I think maybe the next thing that we should talk about is specifically things that might be confusing or that we are confused about. A good starting point is to go back to what Tessa said at the beginning regarding the timeline of the universe that the books are set in and the establishment of where they are and how we know that's where they are. And specifically what I mean is what are the clues that we are in fact still in our solar system just in a super weird way? So this is something that I've wondered a lot about Um, because 
based off of the memes that the Emperor references, he's clearly from some... He's a millennial, basically. You know, he makes left pizza or nun pizza with left beef jokes. You know, things that only a very specific age demographic would get. Um, And presumably he has carried these into the future, these 10,000 years gone by. Um, and, but beyond that, you know, characters also explicitly make references to Shakespeare or to the Bible. Um, so there's definitely some connection or continuity with at least what we would recognize as our civilization and culture and, or at least Western-ish civilization and culture, however you however you want to define that, um, or at least an alternate version of it that still bears a lot of similarity to what we have. Um, but beyond that, there's also some hints that, for example, the house that the first book is largely set at is much older than 10,000 years. So obviously there were people around doing stuff before then. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a passing mention to humanity going extinct, um, again, due to rising seas and a runaway chain nuclear reaction, which maybe a reference to nuclear war or maybe something completely different, but definitely sounds scientific. Um, So in that respect, you know, for something that's ostensibly a fantasy series, there are a lot of references to real world scientific phenomenon. Um, I wonder if this kind of like do a segue for like a hot second about the genre of these books, because I, they're weird because they're also they're they're a fantasy but they're also a space opera so they are very much interesting because they kind of bend the conventions of both fantasy and science fiction engineers into what's called science fantasy and i just sort of wanted to note that because i keep finding people don't know what science fantasy is and i'm like I want you to know because it's one of my favorite things in the absolute world because you get the best of both worlds. Yes. I will say that this is about as close to fantasy as I generally like to get because I like the idea because like, you know, there's the old adage that like magic is just technology that we don't understand. Oh, this is just like, yeah, here's some bones we're going to make more bones out of like this tiny piece of bone. Fuck their yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and it's also interesting because there is that balance of, they have space travel, like they have shuttles that work. However, space stuff works. I'm an entomologist. I don't know. And they have, <laughs> you know, medical science and like a real anatomical understand, like not just an understanding of the shape of the body, but a sort of a medical taxonomy of the body that would be recognizable basically to us and our understanding of anatomy. And so that's interesting. Yeah. So it's probably about 10,000 years from here. And I think that that is one of my sort of lingering thoughts regarding the series. The timeline is interesting because th- this is something that always occurs to me of, of when people choose to set stories and the amount of change that they expect within those units of time. And so I would ask, like, what do you two think about the establishment of this specific universe given that unit of 10,000 years? You know, 
this is what confuses me because there's a throwaway reference or two to when the resurrection happened, it reignited the sun and also in some cases restored the planets. Um, and, you know, theoretically, if we're talking about reigniting the sun, you know, that's five billion years before we really have to worry about that. On the other hand, we don't know how necromancy works, so it's possible whatever resurrected people killed the sun and then the emperor had to go and reignite the sun or something like that. Um, well, actually, I, I this is interesting. Is, is it potentially a lie that he reignited the sun? Yeah, that's the thing is we don't know if he's lying or not about that because, like... He kind of was full of shit about a lot of things. That like, guy sucks. Not very reliable. Ugh. So, like, even with, even with, like, the resurrection, it could have just not happened how he said it did. And I had some thoughts about, like, did humanity actually, actually go extinct? As in, like, there is no more humans and now I am alone? Or... Yeah, there's no more humans on Earth and I'm alone and I'm going to, like, make more people because I'm alone and I have nothing else to do. Hate that guy. <laughs> He's just the worst. <clears throat> this is this is the emotion that has stayed with me the most since finishing the books is just there's that guy sucks. And I wish um, when Mercy had killed him, he had stayed dead. Man, I was so there with you. I was like, holy shit, oh boy, Mercy's so OP. She just killed God. Yeah. And then 30 seconds later, I was disappointed. Ugh, poor Mercy. <laughs> it is very interesting also because the world, it, it's always interesting to me when science fiction, e fiction establishes that there is like a real accessible afterlife of some kind, particularly because the way that the Locked Tomb books talk about it, it doesn't really demysticize it at all, which is part of also what sets it apart from a lot of other science fiction that I've read of they're not dressing up the afterlife in fancy science clothes. They're just establishing it as you have a spirit and it goes to the river. And we don't even understand the river. Like Abigail hints at that, that there's more to it. And there may have been some suppression of that too, which is interesting to me because that kind of ties into God being a big ass liar. <laughs> but the thing guy. I like about with the afterlife and the treatment of death in this series is that death is not the end. It is just, dare I say, a change in state um that of all things does feel the most like solidly christian idea to me yeah because that and i i don't know that that's necessarily the intention but the existence of very firmly an afterlife is so absolutely central to christianity and to christianity's approach to stuff well then we also have a lesbian jesus who's very orange here's something that i'm still not 100% on, which is the creation of the resurrection piece. Is it the idea that they killed the body, i.e. a planet, and thus released its soul? They kind of, they kind of did that, but what they do is they kill 
they kill the planet in such a way that it's so awful that the planet's soul or like the conglomeration of all the life on it gets super pissed off and comes back to wreak vengeance. Well, then the question is, why did that happen with the nine houses planets, but not any of the other planets that they kill just to get that good death energy? I think it does. I, yeah, I seem to recall that they part of it is that they kill the soul or spirit of the planet before it can like gain come to its full powers or resurrection beast. But obviously, they did they didn't know that the first time around. Yeah, so every time they kill a planet, a little soul appears, and it's just that the resurrection beasts were like big Katamari Damacy balls exactly. rolling around. Okay, great, great, great. Because like they'll just keep rolling. It's basically the haters see me rolling meme, but with Katamari balls of body horror. Okay, so that so that clears that up. Because I was a little bit confused about that. Because there's one thing you can say about these books is that there is just a lot happening. Oh my god, yeah, there's so much happening. There's a lot happening. Okay, so Resurrection Beasts, God is the worst. I want to clarify just in case um, the big man is listening. Not him, (laughs) slash her, slash them. Uh, God in the books, who is the worst. We We can talk about our world God some other time. That's a whole other show. That's a whole other show, which we absolutely will do. But yeah, so God is the worst. They're very gay. Resurrection beasts. Timeline. Yeah. Oh, Aaron, you wanted to get more into the ecology of the river. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. So this is kind of, this is one of my really stupid shit posts. But so the thing with the river is that it's a river. So it's a riparian habitat. And there's ghosts in the river and like Harrow and the other lectures going in and out of the river when they're fighting resurrection beasts. And it's there are monsters in that river. And at the bottom of the river, we have this thing called the stoma. It's, it's a very chompy thing. It has teeth. It doesn't have like, you know, like monster teeth it has human teeth which is like okay that's weird okay thanks um i like it but that's weird so the stoma is like totally it's a place where john has no domain so john is god and he's really scared of that place and it also really kind of wants to eat him and that leads me to perceive because they keep because they'll shove resurrection beasts in the stoma because that kind of keeps them from being a problem because they can't get back out and there's actually a character who is currently in the stoma and i kind of want to know what he's doing in there but i don't know if murr is actually going to like tell us that so my joke that the stoma leads to hell essentially yeah that's one of that's basically the implication is that it leads to hell and my really stupid shit post is that the stoma is the apex predator of the river (laughs) (laughs) or that it's the keystone species of the river and it got pissed off because john aka god aka the necrolord prime aka the emperor undying aka one of his other 500 names fucked up the river and now it's mad at john for being a habitat destroyer and basically damming up 
the river and messing with the flow of the souls. And that's why you I know, used to play Hungry Hungry Hippo with John. You, you know, I actually took a course on fluvial ecology um, for my master's, and I'm really fighting the temptation to, like, just completely go off on that about, oh, well, this is clearly good evidence for the flood pulse hypothesis of I mean, Tessa, it's ecosystem. Tessa, yeah, yeah, and it, clearly. What podcast do you think you're on, Tessa? I'm trying so to prove it. Tessa! Flood pulse is the idea that rivers need floods periodically to really maintain good ecological diversity. It also keeps you from having erosion issues because, paradoxically, it keep, prevents overgrowth of um, plants and stuff and from debris accumulating. And, it, you know, it's just really good for river productivity. So... Obviously, when you dam a river, you lose that and you have to start managing your river a lot more carefully. And, you know, there have been some experiments with controlled flooding as a result. So what I'm going to say is that this entire book series is just a metaphor for that. That somehow John, a.k.a. God, dammed the river and screwed everything up. And now the like the, the, the metaphorical salmon of the river, which I guess are souls or possibly resurrection beasts. I don't know can't get up and can't spawn and this is a problem it's just as a side note now that we're talking about salmon have you seen the pictures of the salmon that just like their pokemon evolution into their final like mating form oh yeah it's, it's wild it's wild fish are just a weird in general i worked at aquarium and watched a couple fish transition fish are just weird Fish aren't quite weird. I don't understand fish, and I'm never going to, and I'm not going to try. But I, th- I, Tessa, I think we've cracked it. <laughs> I think any of the theories about the books are wrong, and we're right. <laughs> I mean, that is very because this is the other thing is that necromancy. I think we're we're supposed to believe that necromantic powers are only possible because of the resurrection, right? Yes. Which is interesting. Because necromancy is drawing on the concepts that are established in the books of thanergy or like death energy and thalergy or like life energy. So like if you kill something, then that releases a burst of thanergy. But if something is still alive, you can draw on its thalergy. Some of the different houses do more thanergy stuff and some do more thalergy stuff. And they all do a little bit of both except for like the ninth house because they're just all bones. It's just Bone City 24 7. The ninth house knows what it's about. The ninth house knows what it's about. It's got it's goth look down, goth Catholics. What else do you need? Charles, did you ever read Homestuck? <sighs> Aaron, don't say this to me. Because I haven't ever read Homestuck. But there's apparently Homestuck connection here. Don't ever speak to me about Homestuck ever again. It ruined my life. Charles, our friendship ended. Poisoned my soul for all time. I fortunately was just a year or two old to really, like, somehow I missed that. So I was spared Homestuck. I've heard about it. I think I understand the plot vaguely, although it took three times for someone to finally explain it to me. Oh, I literally do not know what the plot is, and nor do I try to understand. I'm not really falling out of my, you know, going out of my way to go and read it, but... Well, don't. Homestuck is very much like the herpes virus, (laughs) in that once it is inside of your body, 
it nestles down into your like nerve cells and it just lives there forever. Wow. And you never know when you may or may not get an outbreak. And you're normally asymptomatic, but it's never gone. You can't be cured of herpes. You can't be cured of homestuck. I'm gonna give you a give you a thing then, because Tasman Muir was incredibly active in the homestuck fandom, and there is a lot of homestuck in the books, which I don't pick up on. But apparently, there is. I mean, I this almost makes me hate the books, but I'm not going to because they're really good. <laughs> it almost ruined the whole thing for to this day. There is a character that was like one of the most divisive characters, and I won't even speak her foul name. Oh um, my god, I know which one it is too. I mean, yeah, yeah, I've yeah. never read it, but yeah, no. Yeah. Apparently, the face paint came from Homestuck. Ah! <laughs> Aaron, why would you do this to me? I thought we were friends. I mean, the thing is, the face paint in Homestuck is from Juggalos. So what you're saying to me right now is that the face paint in the Lock Tomb trilogy is Juggalos. Yes. You know that that actually isn't that surprising. Just, I mean, given the meme density that's sort of in the orbit of Juggalos, that that doesn't actually. Yeah. Now I can't edit this out because this is the best stuff. I'm sorry, I can't breathe anymore. You've cursed me, and you've cursed this podcast, and you've cursed all trans people in science, so I hope I hope it was... Erin, I hope it was worth it. It was. It was worth it. I, I just had to share that fact, because Ugh. ever since someone cursed me with that fact, I have to, I have to be a super spreader and spread it across. Like, oh, I'm not wearing God. a mask. I'm going to go. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight because I'm going to be suffering because of what you just told me. <laughs> I think interactive fic- fiction is a really interesting genre of storytelling. And what's also really interesting about Gideon the Ninth is that you can tell it's really influenced by uh, JRPGs like Final Fantasy because the way the trials are set up, it's very much like you're dungeon crawling at times and collecting allies. Hero and Gideon start out with like no friends and then as they go along, they gain some through whatever scraps of charisma they have, aka Gideon being a, a himbo and saying shit like, do you know... If you took the first part of your name, of your first name, and the first part of your last name, you'd get, like, sex pal. God bless. <laughs> Good old sex pal. Good oh, old God. sex pal. R.I.P. Or... Or not. I was trying to think of, like, a punchline for that, but I couldn't. Maybe he's not dead. Can't wait to get back to that guy. Because I'm... So basic, but of course I love the nerd house. I love the sixth house. I didn't realize that Palatomy's aka Sexpal is actually younger than me. Yeah, he's like, I was born a 60-year-old man vibes. He's great. I mean, you got Camilla for the lesbians. You got Palamides for everybody else. (laughs) How could you go wrong? You know? So they're really good. The fifth house is also very good. Well, that's one of the nice things about... Because I was, I was, I was kind of incredulous about the structure of the second book, where we essentially relived the whole solar system's next top necromancer process, 
but with a completely different timeline, as if Ordis had actually ended up going as Harrow's Cavalier. Can we just say that Ordis is a good, good boy? I love that guy. And we hate him until book two, and then we realize how much of a good, good goober he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is basically if the kid from the Wells for Boys SNL skit grew up on a weird Pluto death cult. Yep, pretty much. He's like, if there's a modern AU, he has like an AO3 account of like unfinished works. Oh, no, no, no. He didn't even. No, 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 no. He was not hip enough to move to AO3. He's still on fanfiction.net. Oh, my God. Yes. And God bless him for it. You know? Well, and that's what I was going to say is that the the structure of the second book, at first I was like, what is happening? Why are we doing this? But then it gave us an opportunity to really spend a lot of time with characters that we didn't get to know as well. And then get to really appreciate them. Like we got to spend time with the actual Dulcinea. We got to spend time with the actual pro, however you say his name. We got to spend time with Ortis. We got to spend time uh, with Abigail also. Like we didn't really get a lot of Abigail. And Abigail now is like one of my favorite characters because she's also a nerd. And this actually segues into another thing, which is my only ship, which of course is Ortis and Pro. Yes! Ordis and Pro! Pro Man! Oh my god, that works so well. You are welcome. Thank you for that. You spent all your time thinking about lesbians. You didn't even stop to think about the two weird, beefy nerds in their 30s. That moment when Pro starts doing slam poetry and Ordis is like, holy shit, like that's so pure. You can just see see the heart eyes motherfucker going on. It's like a very weird enemies to lovers arc (laughs) where at first they are competing bad poets and then they are allied bad poets. So here's another question, which is in talking about river ecology, the necromancy that we see practiced in the books largely doesn't actually deal with spirit or withholding souls from going to their final resting place. Like the only people that we really see deal with spirit magic specifically are the fifth house. And they mostly just do it with a kind of reverence for the river where they don't really like, they don't bring a spirit back from the dead and then keep them there. Most of the necromancy that we actually see is just a manipulation and creation and destruction of tissue. It's just squishy magic. It's just squishy magic. Or, in the case of bones, very hard magic. And so that's interesting. So, yeah, I'm I'm interested in, in what sort of, if you two have theories, or if there are sort of broader fandom theories about what actually powers necromancy and makes it available to people, and why, if... John were to actually be destroyed and die, necromancy would no longer be available since as far as we can tell, necromancy is just basically a manipulation of forces in the universe that we can't do here in the 21st century just because we don't like know about it. Like nobody has developed the knowledge of those techniques yet. But like why would the destruction of John not only kill the things that he resurrected, but kill all necromantic power and capacity. Well, I think part of it is that the necromantic power is 
directly tied to the resurrection. Like when they talk about Harrow's conception and how Harrow was came to be, it reads very epigenetics to me. I in terms that it's not necessarily inherent to the DNA code, but it's I don't know how to explain it besides it sounds very epigenetic to me. The way they explained it in the book pissed me off for a good two days when because I started yelling about that's not how that's not how DNA works. Well, exp- expand on that. Expand on how that's not how DNA works. Well, they were talking about how I don't remember because I read the book and I read Harrow the Ninth in December because I had advanced readers' copy. So it's a little rusty, but when they talk about how Harrow was conceived, so basically what Harrow's parents do is commit a war crime to make Harrow by essentially killing 200 babies and children and Gideon's the only one that survives because she's indestructible because she's lesbian Jesus. And that's why the ninth house hates her because she didn't die when she was supposed to and she has freaky gold eyes and is kind of, you know, we don't know where this kid came from, and this kid is really weird, and um, Harrow's parents hate her, so we have to hate her, too. So they were talking about it in the book where, basically, in order for a necromancer to be a necromancer, they have to be conceived and be, like, experience, like, death energy during either conception or very close to conception in order to turn out or like before birth in order to turn out a necromancer or be really close to death. And I was like, yeah, okay. So like, you're also telling me that necromancy is hereditary, but you're also telling me it's not. And it's this thing that you experience that changes your genetic code. That's not an indication, but could be epigenetic. Because you're like, yeah, blah, blah, blah with the chromosomes. And I was like, low what? I didn't get epigenetic vibes from that. Um, Although I guess it would kind of make sense. I thought it was, I usually conceptualize Thanergy as essentially uh, a weird indirect way of harvesting increases in entropy. Because that's what happens when living systems die. Yeah, I do agree with the entropy thing, because I do see a lot of necromancy being very much thermodynamic driven, and that there's a lot of weird shit that's not following the laws of thermodynamics. So I thought more of Harrow's story was just that that was essentially them making sure there was enough energy available for her to become a necromancer. And that's somehow tied, that in order to become a necromancer, you have to be born in an environment where there is energy available, not necessarily in an epigenetic sort of way, but I suspect more in terms of just being able to have that energy to harvest. Well, because I would say it also doesn't strike me as particularly outside the realm of something that could be genetic, because we know that there are a lot of heritable traits which are only expressed given certain environmental conditions. Yeah. And so that explanation really just reads to me as she has like the could be a necromancer gene but there needs to, yeah yeah but there needs to be adequate thanergy sort of ambiently to to trigger that into expression well, this is the thing that gets me is that why isn't gideon a necromancer because gideon's mother was basically dying or dead when she was born 
Gideon has almost been killed like 500 times, and yet Gideon has like zero necromantic affinity, as far as we can tell. And she had too much himbo energy. That's and true. It blocked it all out. That's true, which is kind of one of the things that makes me go, okay, I don't really understand what's going on here. Like, is necromancy a recessive gene? We know she has recessive alleles for a rare eye color. And her dad is God, but how come she's not a necromancer if, like, she ha- was exposed to Thanergy and all this other stuff going on? So that's kind of, like, something I'm curious about is if how exactly that works. Because, like, when we look at the third house, we have the two twins, and one is a necromancer and the other isn't. Yeah. And we're told Anathi is the necromancer because she was basically almost strangled by, I think, Karnabas' umbilical cord. I don't remember that. That's extremely metal. In that case, I would think, like, the Ianthi... How are we all saying Ianthi? I don't say anything e- right. Don't listen to me. Well, nobody says anything right because all words are fake. Tessa, how do you how do you say that? Um, Ianthi or Ianth. But I think I think Ianthi probably makes more sense. Given I like Ianthi better. Yeah. Well, so given Ianthi and Coronabeth, and I, I I texted this, well, I messaged Aaron this. I think just like how well set up the Coronabeth is not a necromancer reveal is because like, does she's not a necromancer? She has the exact same body as Ianthi, except that she is radiant and not, and her body isn't riddled with like death energy. And yeah, because that's the thing is also when they talk about necromancers, like necromancers are always really sickly or kind of like waifish compared to non-necromancers because of all like the death energy, which is interesting to me because then you have the twins and it's like, wow, okay. It's just like, it's just like a researcher's perfect like twin study of just like, what is we can see exactly the effects of necromantic energy or necromantic potential on two exactly physically identical people. So that's fun. Well, but in in so in terms of Anthe and Coronabeth, I would even like that even makes sense to me also as a sense of like there was a certain amount of thanergetic energy and there were two babies in the womb and one of them just sucked it all up and the other one didn't get anything. Not unlike one of my favorite episodes of Deep Space Nine. Oh my god. Yes. Um, where Julian and Jadzia go to a planet that has been riddled with a disease that was given to them by the Dominion when they resisted called the Blight. And Julian tries to uh, cure the Blight. And there are a lot of great lessons about humility and perseverance and hopelessness and hopefulness. It's a great episode. But the sort of the climax of the episode is Julian is abandoned by all of his other test subjects because something goes wrong and then they all die anyway. But one woman is left and she's pregnant and he gives her what he thinks is a cure for the blight, but she doesn't get any better. And then she ends up giving birth and then immediately dying. And when she gives birth, it is found that instead of her getting cured of the blight, the baby that she was gestating absorbed all of the cure and then the baby is cured of the blight. And so similarly, 
all of this to say you can have two organisms connected and one of them can suck it all up and the other one can just get nothing. I just am like, I don't understand. Like, why does it work that way? I'm a biologist and I do understand because I've learned how it worked, but yet I'm still like, man, that's really weird when you start thinking about it. Truth of a parody is a nightmare that we're all cursed with knowing. (laughs) No, but yeah, like when I was reading it, I was definitely reading that there was epigenetic factors that would, with both energy and thyroid, like when Tara was conceived, like this energy would um, unspool some of the DNA that was like formerly locked up and couldn't be accessed and um, expressed. But then there was like something about, then there was like something else in there that was explained that it happened. I don't remember. It was, it was one of those things when I was, I was mad because it happened in a sequence that wouldn't work if it happened in real life. Well, it's, I mean, then we return back to the point of this is a universe where giant body horror Katamari balls traverse the universe because their planets were killed. I'm also a dumb biologist and I must scream at all times. Mm-hmm. That's valid. Well, in terms of the genetics thing, I was thinking of it less of like epigenetics and a specific segment like getting unspooled by the energy and more of sort of the classic. And this is because I TA genetics last year that this is at the top of my mind. The classic, like, lack operon. Maybe lack operon. Oh, God, I hate the lack operon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't think about it. But, like, that sort of classic, like, you have environmental conditions, and then the promoter gets turned on, or this other thing turns it off, and then all of that together, and then Thanergy sort of gets in there and goes, whoop, and, like, you know, puts down an enzyme on a certain section of DNA, and then if you don't have the energy, then it can't connect and whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. See, I was like thinking at even a higher level. I was like, oh, the DNA is just coiled around a histone because my brain immediately goes there. But yeah, no, yeah, it's yeah. lack Afron. God. <clears throat> genetic. There's, I, I hated TAing genetics because I am not a geneticist and I will never be a geneticist. Mood. That's why I refused to tutor genetics. Although they did make yeah, me yeah. tutor micro and I don't know why because I never took micro. <laughs> Kick out an A, though, so it must have worked. There you go. There you go. No, so there's that. So the Resurrection Beast, we've talked about the river, God sucks. I do do really see the, of course, Gideon is lesbian space Jesus because she is the daughter of God. Literally. Literally. Oh, this was what I was going to say, in that Gideon can't, actively harness Thanergy, but she is not a normal person with regards to death. No, she's absolutely not. Like So there is so she clearly has been affected by the circumstances of her birth. Just not in like the classic I necromancer actually wonder, way. Wonder instead of being riddled with death energy with Thanergy the way that necromancers are she's the opposite she's just like overflowing with allergy with life and mm. yeah that's a really good point because that would be really interesting because like a lot of the stuff in the books it's very cyclical and it's also very much about parallel narration and narrative and like one of the 
characters that like mirror Harrow and Gideon's relationship is Oji and Farah, who are the second house lifters, and Oji is also named Gideon and is also dubbed Ortis by Harrow's poor, poor brain. Um, and he, if I remember right, he is he does a lot of phallurgy stuff. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, no, that actually does fit. That I didn't even recognize that parallel until you were like, yo, Gideon's like totally full of life energy. And then I was like, wait a moment, this is yet another thing that OG and Farah like totally mirror Harrow and Gideon. Well, so here's a question is do we think Gideon will be meaningfully resurrected in the next book now that God knows now that we all know Gideon's origin. Yeah. I, okay. So end of the book, Gideon is presumably stuck in Harrow's body. Um, or at least her soul, her consciousness is, we don't know where Harrow's consciousness is. And also the entity in the tomb who's referred to as Electo, um, has been revealed as being the living cavalier of God, because it turns out you don't actually have to eat your cavalier to become a lictor. Well, yeah, let's let's back yeah. up a moment because I don't know that we've really talked about that whole situation. Oh my god, that whole situation is so fucked. <laughs> it's bad. Well, so here's it's why we hate God. It's well, it's it's one reason we hate God. Um, the other reasons are just that he sucks, that he is bad, that he's terrible. Um, that we don't like that he's um hate that guy so the so the lictor thing so basically the a lot of the plot of the first book revolves around these mysterious facilities in the basement of Canaan house which is the big house that they go to on it is the house of the first house which we assume is earth basically in these facilities there are all of these different sort of challenges that require a cavalier and a, um, and a necromancer. And then when you get through the challenge, you get access to like the chambers beyond that clearly were used by a necromancer and a cavalier. And there's all of this sort of like hushed, sort of like, a, like generally sort of spooky, mysterious information about like how they were working on these various theorems of necromancy and all of it sort of implied to be they were working out how to become lictors, and by figuring out the work that they did, the people who are there now can follow in their footsteps. And as it turns out, we learn at the end of the first book that to become a lictor, you have to kill your cavalier and then absorb their soul into your body so that you have essentially a constant battery, an inexhaustible battery of death juice just buzzing away inside you all the time so that you don't have to keep killing stuff to harvest more death energy. You just have, you know, an endless fountain that you can use to do your various necromantic deeds. And that's why lictors are so powerful and seemingly immortal because they've got just that that energy battery just powering all their systems. So there's that's most lictors. And then we find out towards the end of the second book that you don't actually have to kill dead your lictor. There can be a sort of a, a reciprocal exchange between a lictor 
and their cavalier, and both of them can be left alive, but the, literally the only person who has ever accomplished this is John, and the body in the locked tomb that is kept in the ninth house is his living but suspended cavalier who is also heavily, heavily implied to be some sort of dark construction of his own who is monstrous and inhuman. He might, the popular fan theory is that his cav is the resurrection beast of Earth because we currently don't know where that one is. And there is another resurrection beast that has taken a humanoid shape. So it's not too far out of the question that Electo is Earth's soul. Yeah, and also other thing to note is that there is another person who did almost get close to achieving perfect lecturehood, but John sabotaged her by killing her cab, and she never became an actual lifter. And lo and behold, guess which house she found? The, it's the ninth one. Yeah, it's the ninth house. Anastasia basically gets sent to the to what is now the ninth to guard Electo, the cab in the tomb. That's who's in the tomb. And yes, yes, very important. So my question is. Is there an explanation that we're really given for why the other lictors were not helped towards actual perfect lictorhood? Because, yeah, we aren't really given an explanation. My suspicion is that somehow that makes you more powerful, and John thought that would be too much of a threat to his own power. What a horrible narcissist. He is horrible. We should really... He's so bad. It's, I mean, there are a lot of interesting sort of religious questions, because... This is something that always gets to me when people talk about religion. Like, okay, so veering off track for a little bit, but this is my podcast and I'm the editor and I can do what I want. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one thing that always really gets my goat is when people talk about the existence of like Thor and Loki and how that immediately discounts, for example, a Christian understanding of God. Like, how can you still believe in your Christian God when we have literal actual gods? And then it's like, well, no, because Thor and Loki are corporeal and they're temporally limited and they are powerfully limited and they're effectively just hyper-powered aliens, which doesn't then discount the Christian, for instance, construction of God, which is as a, a fundamentally incomprehensible entity which existed before and beyond the universe, right? And so similarly... Locked tomb. Am mm. I right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well do any well do any so do any of us that was that sounded very final, but it was it was meant to be an opening up of like how do we sort of square like there is sort of the question there. One thing that people love to lobby against, for instance, the Christian construction of God, is that God is like has to be a horrible narcissist. And so I guess talking about a character who literally calls himself God and is a horrible narcissist sort of brings up those questions of like, you know, how do we live in the world? Yeah, I don't really know how to answer that because I generally, when I talk about like religion in these books, I usually talk about it from a, from a symbolism point of view, like mm. what the symbology means in terms of like what the next book is going to have. Well, so here's an actual point of connection, which is, you have mentioned before, not in this conversation, but in our previous mythical conversation that 
we have no proof happened, but did, um, that, uh, oh, that John feels very eco-fascist to you. Oh my God, he feels so eco-fascist to me. But, 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 my first response was to think, well, I don't connect John with eco-fascism because Blood of Eden sounds like a super eco-fascist group name to me. And so that was my first thought was sort of an eco-fascist like attitude, particularly because most of what we know about the Blood of Eden is just that they oppose necromancy and they view it as sort of a corruption, which feels, again, very like Christo eco-fascist to me of like, how dare you manipulate these forces of the universe and very literally play God? Well, I mean, so... I don't know enough about Blood of Eden because we don't really get too much of their ideology because we have to remember that Wake is a revenant, which basically means she's an angry ghost that's just so angry that she can body snatch and her main goal in life is to kill people because she hates necromancers and hates John. So we don't really get too much of their backstory. So I kind of want to hold off judgment on their ideology, whereas we get a lot of John's ideology and we get a lot of his anger and rage at humanity for either A, leaving him behind or destroying the earth, which for me immediately is like, oh yeah, that's that's a eco-fascist dog whistle when we start to talk about humanity being a plague and a virus and humanity should be punished for these things. Yeah. Well, why don't we talk more about what is actually like established on the page explicitly in the books? Because I think I missed a lot of like the fine details because I was really just sort of powering through. Yeah. You can really power through these books and come back and reread them and be like, holy shit, I totally missed this thing. Cause like there's a meme in there that I didn't get on my first read until someone was like, yeah, so how about that S? And I was like, the what now? So what we do know about what happened on Earth is that there was a nuclear... Disaster, war, we're not sure which. Yeah, and then there was climate change, which is referenced by rising oceans. And we know that John was alone, that he was... I'm not sure if he was left alone. I can't remember exactly, but it sounded like he was left in some way. We know that he's angry at humanity for what happened, and he feels that humanity should pay for its sins from some of the things he says. And what we know, generally what we know about Blood of Eden is that they're terrorists. They tend to be terrorists because they're a much smaller, rebellious group, that they're outside of the empire, and we don't know if they were part of the Empire at some point or if they have always been outside. We know that there was a point where John did something to children. We don't know what or how long ago because that gets brought up about something about killing like 10,000 kids. And there's something about nukes. And we don't, and the nuke thing I think is more recent. I don't know how recent the kid thing is in terms of the timeline of the story. The timeline is really vague. Because I know that was one of the things that really came up in a lot of fandom discussions about how is the first house still inhabitable when they still have, when there was like a nuclear thing, if this is truly Earth. And like, I went and looked and yeah, 10,000 years is long enough for a place to be totally fine to inhabit. Like after nuclear um, apocalypse 
because I kind of I went and did some research because I was also watching the HBO Chernobyl miniseries at the same time and I was like I kind of know things about radiation because I grew up next to a power plant that was nuclear and I feel like it would be long enough but I don't know and then I looked and I was right (laughs) that also gets circles back around to my initial point regarding 10,000 years as a timeline for the end cultural result that we see because 10,000 years feels like an unbelievably long amount of time to still produce human attitudes and relationships that are fundamentally recognizable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I have mixed feelings about that because we could read classics from 10,000 years ago and still recognize like what's going on. So I feel like sometimes human nature isn't as mutable as we like to think it is. Well, not even necessarily human nature, but for instance, we know that John inherited millennial memes because of the very, very good none pizza with love beef joke and then we hear and see characters also like other characters make references to other memes of our specific time period and so we know that those memes probably came from john got established in like the culture and then got passed down to the point but as far as i know we don't have any fun memes from our culture 10,000 years ago. And then is that explicable because unlike us, they actually have somebody who experienced that initial grain of culture and had that cultural memory. And then instead of dying was just around for the entire length of his progenitor culture to reestablish and reseed all of the same things that he's familiar with. I I suspect it's, that case that you know essentially you've got someone who is from that era who's also a narcissist and ostensibly the most single powerful human in that we know of that yeah essentially the reason things maybe haven't changed as much as we thought they would have is in a lot of ways either deliberately or accidentally he's kind of keeping society in stasis yeah Um, and like we also have like we noticed that things stop decaying the closer they get to him so that could also go for like things like memes, not just like physical objects. Well, and then we get to the blood of Eden thing where from the little that we experience of them, when Camilla and the other two that I don't care about as much appear in the second book, it their technology feels unfamiliar and potentially a little bit older. Yeah, so the interesting thing about Blood of Eden is that they use guns. There is no guns in the Nine Houses. And that's part of the reason why Wake is so dangerous, because the necromancers and calves, they've never had to do guns before, and we don't know why. I don't know if John just was like, yeah, no, swords are better, or what. Which is kind of interesting to me, and... It's interesting to me that they seem to have clunky clunky technology, but so does the Nine Houses. But in a way, Blood of Eden has kind of innovated on the clunky technologies in some ways that the Ninth Houses have not done. Because if you notice, Wake specifically uses like Harrow uh, 
she knows that heralds freak out necromancers and she's weaponized that in a way that i don't think the nine houses have because they're so isolated from the whole resurrection beast deal because john isn't there so they don't see these katamari balls of monsters with these lots of lots of many hands that can give good hugs well it's so this actually gets to maybe an unrelated but kind of related thing is that in the first book we're told about a sleeper in canaan house but we never see it and then in the second book we kind of see it but the degree to which it is a a meaningful reaction a meaningful representation of the reality of what the sleeper is is questionable because what is happening is not what actually happened it's like a a a mind play that harrow's brain is putting on with her soul and the river and ghosts and whatever and so the sleeper as we see it in the second book has a big hazmat suit and a gun and is going around blasting people because they don't know how to deal with guns because the nine houses don't use guns and so do we know actually exactly what the sleeper is? Uh, I don't think we ever really get explained what teacher means by the sleeper. And like the only thing I can think of is that the sleeper actually refers to either Earth's soul sleeping, slumbering, or to Electo. Because if Electo was ever at the first house, then teacher probably would have met her. Yeah. Well, do we... Th- because hmm. would we think that Electo would have the power to sort of project, like astral project? It seems that she does, because she hmm. haunts Harrow. Well, does she? So, uh, Harrow is an interesting character, because she's one of the very few characters that I've encountered who is severely mentally ill who does not have a story that resolves around uh, psychiatric um, institutionalization. Um, You can tell it's getting tired because I'm starting to lose words. And Harrow has a history of hallucinations, but from what I see and how things interact in with the events of Harold the Ninth, it seems that Electo is actually astro-projecting, which kind of ties into the epilogue, which is super confusing on purpose, because Murr hates us. Um, I don't even remember the epilogue. So, the epilogue is where we have this person, and Cam's there, and we don't know who this person is, besides that this person doesn't either know who they are or they do know who they are and doesn't say who they are and it's really freaky because like they just eat like deep fried food that's right out of the fry vat without like getting burned and it doesn't seem to be a necromancer but we're not sure and the setting so the speculation is the setting is that they're on a blood of eden planet which is why they play with the bones only when the curtains are closed. The fan speculation is that that's Electo in Gideon's body. Oh. Because the reason why we think this is because of how the way the tomb was opened. The tomb can only be opened with John's blood. We got the spawn of God here, which is Gideon. And Harrow and Gideon had that really awful fight and Gideon's blood got under Harrow's nails, and that's how she was able to bypass. Oh, 
Yeah. Oh, you didn't get that? No. Oh my god, it's the small details, man. Like literally. So there's all these little things that like build up to *Hair of the Ninth* that like if you go back and reread them, like you'll be like, "Holy shit, what the hell!" But yeah, no, that's how Harold opened the tomb. It wasn't necessarily that she was a great necromancer, which she is. She is the one of the best necromancers out there. It's because she had Gideon's blood under her nails. That is how she bypassed the wards. She couldn't have done it without Gideon's blood, which... I didn't, because I was like, well, we... Because I was just thinking, well, maybe she hallucinated going into the tomb and seeing the body. So we're not entirely sure if she actually managed to get that far in the tomb before Gideon went and squealed, but she did open the tomb. And she did seem to see the body. And it is confirmed that there is a body in there and that it is Electo, that there is a dead girl. Well, not dead girl, but, you know. Frozen. Um, Suspended, yeah. Yeah, frozen girl in there. And so for her... To be haunted by Electo, it doesn't seem that far out, especially considering like when she says that she's never like Gideon's sword, and then later it turns out that Gideon's pissed off mom, who hates all necromancers, has been literally attached to that sword for the entirety of Harrow's life. It doesn't seem that far fetched that Electo protecting during the the ninth. Yes, that's how that's how she. That's how she got into Cytheria. Yes, yes, that is how she got into Cytheria because she got stabbed with the sword, and Wake was like, "Oh, hey, it's free real estate." Listen, I know a couple things about insects. You know, it's not completely empty up here. Just mostly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, it's not completely out of the question that. Electo was haunting, like, legit straight-up astro-projecting and haunting Harrow. Um, but she could still not be, but it seems to be that is a really good possibility, especially considering that Electo only ever appears... Basically, Electo doesn't ever appear in her bubble either, which is interesting, too, to me. Because, like, if she was having more hallucinations it wouldn't be too far out of line for electo to also be in the canaan house bubble stuff going on too that her brain is constructing and pulling back these ghosts but like silas was just and corona beth like no silas was also but like corona beth was just a construct of whatever harrow imagined her to be whereas like the other ones like dulcie that was a real because all the ones who died well all the ones who were still alive died in the dream one and then all the ones who were dead stayed alive because they were the ones whose spirits like were in the river to be accessible yeah so i don't know electo could have been a hallucination or she could have legit been astro projecting and i'm on actual projection team in terms of things but harrow harrow like gideon is an unreliable narrator I'm interested if either of you have speculation on what you think will happen in Electo the Ninth. I think we're going to have a bit of a road trip in getting everybody's soul into their proper body because we don't know where Harrow's soul is. We know Gideon's last time we checked was in Harrow's, but it may have gotten moved to a different one. And we there's some suspicion that the body that the, the unknown individual, the weird acting person we see in the epilogue may be Electo in Gideon's body. 
So pretty much get get everybody back in their right bodies. Hopefully Gideon and Harrow can actually talk to, you know, sit down and talk to each other about their feelings. That would be nice. Um, and then um, the presumably the tomb is already open or is it going to be opened? And hopefully we'll find out what exactly went down in the resurrection. Hopefully we kill God. Yeah, I, I hope John kill died. God, kill God, <laughs> kill God, kill. Yeah, God. so I do a lot of what Tessa said is a lot of the, a lot of the same things. I think um, Tasman Muir actually did an AMA recently where she just say it's there is a very bad heist. There is a road trip. They do move house. John makes bacon apparently, but. So I do believe. Don't eat bacon, John. It's bad for your colon. (laughs) I'll just let him eat bacon, then he'll die. There's, I do believe we are definitely going to have some sort of musical chairs with body swapping. Uh, We to get people into the right places, and I don't know. Like I feel like we're gonna have a lot more cam. I don't know whose POV it's going to be. I feel like we we may not get the same sort of POV stuff that we did in the past two books, but we'll see because the first person to direct is a really effective narrative choice and maybe she'll continue using that particular POV style. And I do think in terms of some other stuff that will go down is I feel like Electa will have to be laid to rest in some way. And I feel like with this series, since it's very much about cycles and breaking the cycles, that either God will be killed and necromancy will end, or they'll do something else. And I don't foresee, like, a happily ever after type ending, especially for a series that deals so deeply with trauma, particularly queer trauma. I feel like we're going to get a bittersweet ending, but it's going to be hopeful where it's very much like, well, now we've solved, we kind of solved this problem, but we have to communicate with each other in order to move forward. And it's going to take time to heal because this, this is not an easy wham, bam, evil, evil is defeated. We now live happily ever after because there's many layers to many things that we see going on. And then we kill God. Yes, I do believe God is going to get killed, and I believe Anathi is going to be the one to do it. Ooh. That is my prediction. Why? I suspect, like, right, like, she's a very, Anathi is a very interesting character to me, because she's, everything she does, she does it for a reason, and her reason usually has to do with her sister. Hmm. Oh, just as a one of my favorite parts of the second book is just the gay jealousy triangle of Gideon, Harrow, Ianthe. Oh, and God. Gideon just being like, she doesn't, it didn't mean anything to her. She just likes bones. Like, okay. <laughs> I honestly want more of Gideon and Ianthe, like, just chilling and hanging out. Because I think they would actually be friends in others if it was a different situation. Because they are quite yeah. funny together. And I do sometimes think it would be really funny if John was like, yo, I'm going to do arranged marriage. Come here, Gideon. Come here, Nappy. You're you're married now. This is just how it be. Because I think that would just be hysterical. And that would be enough to wake 
up Harold from her. Well, I'm not, but she's very sorely needed in the bubble. Oh, yeah. The other thing that the fandoms talked about a lot and is the thing that many people want is they want a Sleeping Beauty style or Snow White style wake up being of Harold in the bubble because Gideon will have to abide by the bubble rules. And everyone is just like, what if, what if Gideon has to kiss Harold to wave her up? What a and, bunch of nerds. I know. What a bunch of gay nerds. I know. Everyone's like, what if? What if? What if we were both girls and we were in like a like a death bubble and we kissed? <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. 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 Oh, dear. Good books. It is a really good book. There's a lot in it. They're very heavy in many ways. Um, I talk a lot about, we didn't really even touch on this at all in the podcast, but like I've written a little bit about this, about how the books deal with mental health and the cycle of abuse. And it's really wonderfully handled. That it's not just funky space lesbians having a good time. They are not having a good time, but they're also having a good time. That it's It's a really good book series. Please just read it. They're very good. Well, d- well, I'm hoping that nobody has gotten to this point without reading it because we just spoiled everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, now is more all the reason to read it and see what parts we didn't talk about because there's a ton of parts we didn't talk about. Well, yeah, but it's the surprises are really good. I and mean, it's fun to like put stuff together. I mean, yes, but also. The ending of Her of the Ninth is such that we just don't know what's going to happen going until after the ninth. So, like, even if you're spoiled, I, you're still going to be surprised once the last That's one true. comes out. I did recommend these to my therapist this week. <laughs> I was like, you got it. Space, necromancy, lesbians, swords. And she was like, I'm on it. Say no more. Also, the side story, um, doc- The Mysterious Study of Dr. Seth, which is on the Sixth Health. And it's about Baby Cam and Big Tail. There is a non-binary secondary character in there. And mm. it's free on Tor.com. And it's actually a good read before you read Hero of the Night because it gives you some clues, which we may have already talked about. But it gives some clues about what's up with Cam. Well, that that is actually something that is interesting to me that we didn't really talk. Because as we've said... These books are not only, like, teasingly gay, but just, like, gay. Yeah, there's nothing subtle about it. There's not, not remotely... It's it's just text. But there is not really anything about gender in them. Like, we still have male and female characters, and as far as we know, they're all cis? So that's interesting. I do love a trans reading of camp, but... Uh, it's more headcanon than anything else and i can also read harrow as trans too but once again one of my friends is a very very big advocate of um gideon as trans yeah that's also a really good one well see mine would just be palamedes (laughs) my reasoning is i like him yeah and that's it you know i mean if guys want to talk about trans science fiction i have a lot of trans science fiction recommendations and we need that to be a separate show (laughs) we're gonna get to it you gotta read faster dude 
Okay. Uh, <laughs> closing out. Okay. Aaron, if people want to find you online, where can they look? People can find me on Twitter at Insectoid Review, and uh, I have a science fiction themed blog that's Insectoid Reviews, and you can also find me at I actually recently changed my professional not science fiction Twitter to bug underscore wrangler and I literally never post anything there but you can follow me there too and then I also have an Instagram for my art which is at caterpillar.creative because I am very creative and I am a little caterpillar so that's where you can find me wonderful Um, you can find me on Twitter at cockroach arls and Tessa and you can find me on Twitter at SpacerMace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E. And you can find the show on Twitter at ASABpod and at our website, ASABpodcast.com, where we post transcripts of every episode on our sign-off. Yeah, and until next time, keep on scienting. Wonderful.